0: Thank you for joining us for the study of God's word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through his word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Thank you all for leading us in worship through song. I appreciate that so much. Immediately before Jesus ascended to the Father, his apostles asked him this question. Is this the time for the restoration of the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus said, it is not for you to know the times or the epochs. It is that which the Father has fixed by his authority, and he keeps that to himself. Well, the last couple of weeks, we have been looking at the teaching of Jesus in the book of Matthew 24. It has to do with what we commonly call the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and it's not only a common way of looking at it, it's the right way to look at this teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is king of kings. That's putting it mildly. There's really no way we can appreciate what that means. What we do know from a study of the concept of the kingdom of God, however, in the New Testament, is that the kingdom requires a ruler. And there's one undisputed ruler of the world. He's not going to be knocked off his throne. He's not going to allow things to get out of hand. Because he is sovereign. Excuse me. <coughs> I'm going to put a man in here before I get on a coffin fit. In the book of Psalm 103, verse 19, the Bible says, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and that goes on to say, His sovereignty rules over all. The word sovereignty really would be better translated from the Hebrew his kingdom rules over all. He is the ruler. He is the absolute ruler. Also a kingdom requires a realm. And by that I mean constituents. Subjects would be a better word. What is a king without subjects? There is no one to rule. But By his grace, he has seen to it that people who have recognized him as their king and crowned him as Lord, they have been embraced by him and they're part of his kingdom. We pray in the Lord's Prayer, the first petition, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That petition that Jesus calls us to pray is an indication that there are still pockets of rebellion and resistance to the rulership of God in his kingdom. And he is going to make that right someday. We know, as we've read from Matthew 24:3, let's look at it again for the third time. Matthew 24, 3, as... He was sitting, that would be Jesus on the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? The things referred to are when will the temple be destroyed is what they were referring to. And what will the sign of your coming and of the end of the age be? I want to look for a moment at that last statement the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. This age in which we live is an age in which God is ultimately sovereign. But the reality is the kingdom of God is not in full force in terms of all people claiming him as their king. We know from what Paul wrote in the book of Philippians about Jesus, when Jesus became obedient even to death on a cross, and he was given the name that is above every name, that there's coming a time when every knee shall bow. Now, listen, in heaven, they're already bowing in heaven, and on earth, that's where the rub lies, and then under the earth, that would probably imply not people who had died physically, but probably the underworld that is ruled by none other than the devil himself. All beings created by the Lord will bow before him and acknowledge that he is king. But meanwhile, we're in an interim period between the fall of man when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden and passed on, Adam did, his seed to us, which we're natural-born sinners, without exception. We're born in this world with a sinful nature, is what the scripture teaches. And thank God, Jesus comes, and Jesus reveals himself to us, and we respond in faith, and we crown him Lord of our lives, and the result is that the kingdom grows on earth, Jesus was asked one time, where is your kingdom? Do you remember what he said? My kingdom is within you, is what he said. It's among you. He's talking about those believers who follow. But in the individual's life, who knows Jesus Christ, the kingdom has come. And a person who really knows Jesus as his or her Lord, and that's the only way you can know him to begin with. Sometimes we get off the ranch and we don't follow him as Lord. We take matters into our hands again. But the reality is where Jesus is Lord, the flag of his Lordship flies over the heart of the one who knows Jesus is Lord. So the kingdom is here in part and there's coming a day at the end of this age, there's coming a day When Jesus is going to call all who have died, not just those who have died in Christ, but all people are being called out of the grave to a resurrection of the body. To those who know Jesus Christ, we are going to have a body that is just like his. It's an eternal body. To those who don't know Jesus Christ, they are going to be raised to judgment in those bodies through which they sinned. Have you ever stopped to consider that we will be people who will be justified by Christ's presence in our lives and what he did through us? And the Bible speaks of our receiving rewards, actually. We don't hear a whole lot about that. I don't really think about it all that much. But we do know, as Paul himself said, when he was on death row in Rome... In 2 Timothy, rather, chapter 4, he makes this statement. He says, the time of my departure has come, he said. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And now it's ready for me to depart and be with Jesus. I've looked forward to this for so long. You can hear his voice almost. And he said, I'm going to receive the crown of righteousness That is reserved not only for me, but for everyone who loves his appearing. Do you look forward to the appearing of Jesus Christ? We are studying what we call the second coming of Christ, obviously. And our response to what we learn will be telling as to whether we really love his appearing and will receive this crown of righteousness. There are other crowns, the crown of life. I'll talk about that a little later if I remember. When we get to that part of this text, that would suggest it would be appropriate in application of what lies ahead. But the kingdom of God is only partially in play in the lives of people who are created in His image. Only partially. But at the appointed time, at the end of this age, Jesus is coming again. There's going to be a resurrection of all humanity, some to judgment and some to reward. Eternal reward, eternal judgment. But then in addition to that, there's going to be the inauguration of what is commonly called the Millennium. The Millennium will be a time of a thousand years. It will be preceded by seven years of tribulation. We're going to look at that a bit later in our exploration of this passage. This is all introduction, obviously. But what we do know is at the end of that thousand years, there's going to be a rebellion. At the beginning of it, Satan is put away in chains so that he cannot exercise his influence in total. But there will be those during that thousand years who even though Jesus is reigning on earth, he is in his element as the king of the universe. There will be people who will rebel at the end. Satan will be released. And he will mount a mighty charge. He will gather all those beings, whether they are demonic fallen angels or they are people who are alive at that time, and there will be a massive war. We know it by the name Armageddon on the plain of Megiddo. Some of you have been there in Israel. You know how vast that plain is. You can see how such a conflagration will occur. But we know who's going to win, don't we? Isn't the devil rather dense? He never gives up, but he will be once and for all done for. And then there will be no more rebellion in the universe against the Lord Jesus Christ. His kingdom will have come finally and fully on earth as it is in heaven. So when we think about this idea of That the apostles were curious about what will be the sign of your coming. That word we've seen, I'm going to mention it again, parousia is the word, is the way it sounds in the original language. And it was used outside the New Testament to describe the welcoming of a new potentate, a new king, a new leader into a city. And what would happen? That person might be considered divine. It would be a divine visitation. Certainly a helpful coming it would be. And it would be a visitation of a state figure, someone who was going to rule. All those fit Christ to a T. When he comes again, that's going to happen. It is coming. In the end of the age, there's going to be a new age that extends out throughout the end of time. When he will rule, he will be recognized. There'll be no outward rebellion, at least, during that time against his monarchy as he rules. That having been said, we want to pick up where we left off last week. We looked at verses 4 through 14. And what we discovered was that a lot of things that we are concerned about really are things which are preliminary to what is called the Great Tribulation. Wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes, famines, plagues, those things are part of the birth pangs. And remember how we saw that these birth pangs are like the contractions which a woman undergoes Many of you women remember your first contraction, and you might not even have been sure that it was a contraction because you never had one. And it seems sort of mild compared to some of the stories you had heard told about how grievous that period was. But before long, you knew what was meant. And each successive contraction was more intense, and then the time interval between contractions got shorter and shorter and shorter until the time of birth. There, Throughout history, especially since Jesus taught this, there have been these accelerating contractions, if you will, birth pangs. Even the created order in Romans 8 has these birth pangs in anticipation of the revelation of the sons of God when they will be known for who they are. It'll be the time of the end. Well, let's look at verse 15. Having looked at the preliminaries last week, sort of a bird's eye view, flying over and getting getting the basic lay of the land related to the coming of Christ predated by the tribulation. It's called the Great Tribulation. Let's read verses 15 and following. In, in the interest of time, I'm going to just work our way through this passage with you, beginning with verse 15. Verse 15 says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Immediately, there's a phrase there that may sound strange to you. We don't usually use the word abomination abomination of desolation, I don't remember the last time in ordinary conversation that I used either abomination or desolation. The word abomination carries with the idea of something that is repulsive, something that needs to be repudiated, something that is a threat to that which honors God. If you've read the Proverbs recently, you know there are several places in the book of Proverbs where there is a warning against certain behaviors that are an abomination to the Lord. The Lord cannot countenance those things. They are in direct opposition to God's kingship, his rulership. The abomination of desolation mentioned here is connected to what is spoken of in the book of Daniel, the prophet. Jesus was a man of the word, You say, of course he was. He was God, become man, and you would be right. But Jesus in his humanity studied the Bible. He knew it backwards and forwards, I'm sure. He knew the relationship of the things which the prophet Daniel was given by the Holy Spirit to be recorded in his prophecy. There are four places, one in the 8th chapter, one in the ninth chapter, one in the 11th and one in the 12th chapter. God willing, we won't look at those today, but God willing, we'll get to look at those in some detail in the very near future. This whole idea of Jesus giving this information, there are two main things you and I need to remember. And I've asked the Lord to help me to say them in such a way that they will not be confusing. And I'm counting on him doing this. When Jesus gives this teaching, one thing he had in mind was giving a description of the responsibilities that the first generation of followers of Christ were obligated to do as time neared the end of what is known as the War of the Jews and he wanted the people to be ready for that historical event. And he had, in his own mind, something that had happened two centuries about before that. You may know a little bit about the history of the intertestamental period between the close of the Old Testament with Malachi and the coming of John the Baptist, about four centuries. That was a long time. The Bible says there was no new word from God. Would you like to live in that world? Unbelievable. Well, there was a man who became the king of the Seleucid Empire. He was a Greek. His name was Antiochus Antiochus. Epiphanes IV. He had a hatred of the Jews. He didn't know them, but he was anti-Semitic to the core. And he was on a mission when he came with his forces and landed on the shore of Israel and began to march toward Jerusalem. His goal was to make a statement about how much he hated and would not tolerate the practice of Jewish religion. In order to show where he stood, he had a statue of Zeus, the Greek god, the chief god of Greeks. He had that statue with him wherever he went. And when he got to the temple, he gave instructions for that idol to be taken in to the temple. That would be an abomination of desolation, wouldn't it? For sure but that's not exactly what's mentioned here. But he took it in there, and then in addition to that, he took a sow pig and placed the pig on the altar where blood sacrifice was made for the sins to be atoned for Israel. And he put it there and sacrificed it to a pagan guy An abomination of desolation. Jesus was familiar with this. And he had that as an historical point in the past that he referred to in his own thinking and probably was at the back of his mind when he talks about this abomination of desolation. What happened in 70 AD? Well, a man by the name of Titus Flavius, he was a general in the Roman army. He later became Caesar, for only about two years after this event. But the year was 66 AD. He came in to Palestine, and he was committed to taking control of Jerusalem and the nation. It seems that the various parties who were just sick and tired of being under the thumb of Rome... They were intent upon taking full control and they had succeeded of Jerusalem and they were ruling it absent of any Roman influence. So Titus came and in 70 AD after a long siege there was an actual five month siege less a few days to surround the city and try to get the people to give in. Propaganda was used. And all kinds of effort was made short of tearing the walls down. And then finally, giving up, he said, we've got to attack. And he gave orders, you may recall, to his soldiers, don't desecrate their temple. But they didn't listen. Men do things they wouldn't do in their right mind in war. And they went and they destroyed that temple. And they burned it. And they destroyed all the artifacts there that were so valuable. To the worship of the one true God. And there again, once more, second time in history, the abomination of desolation reared its ugly head. In Daniel's treatment of this abomination of desolation, in chapter 9, it's obvious that he's talking about an individual to begin with. He uses the masculine word for that. But in the other two at the end, chapters 11 and 12, he seems to be talking about a place, not a person. And that has created some problems for interpreters of the Bible. Is the abomination of desolation a person, as I believe, the Antichrist? Or is abomination of desolation a place? Well, it's both. Because in the case of Antiochus Epiphanes and the case of those warriors who destroyed the temple under Titus, there was a place and people desecrated the place. It was a holy place that was desecrated. And it was abomination. It was something that was utterly reprehensible to God. Oh just unbelievable. So this is what we're told. When you see the abomination of desolation which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. This is the sign that the Lord is coming soon. I mean like very soon. And we know that we can look back to this abomination of desolation expression in 70 A.D. And we can look forward. There's coming a day when the Antichrist is going to show up and we who know Jesus are going to know who he is. We will know, I believe, because we have the blueprint here that God has given us so that we will know these things and we can be prepared for them and respond appropriately to them. With that having been said, how do we respond appropriately? Remember, these are directions given to this particular set of people to whom this was first revealed in the time after this discourse in the early 30s AD leading up to the 70s. This will, I hope, encourage you, what I'm about to tell you. The greatest church historian in the early history of the church, was a man named Eusebius. Eusebius records information about a visitation of Jesus. I'm sorry I don't have access to the Eusebius text itself. I'm doing this as secondhand information, but the person from which I received it is a well known and honest scholar, loves the Lord. And what he tells about Eusebius' writing. Eusebius told about these people who had a visitation from Jesus. I don't know if it was a vision or a dream. I don't know which it was. But he spoke to them and warned them and he told them, get out of town. You know what they did? They packed up their belongings and they made haste and they got out of town. They did exactly what Jesus says here. To flee Ordinarily, when we think of someone who says he or she is a believer, who runs, that that's a sign of cowardice. But not so in this case, and not so in some many other cases. If you were to look at the 10th chapter of Matthew, and Jesus gives orders to his apostles or disciples as they're going out, and on verse 23, when he's winding up his orders for them he says whenever they persecute you in this city flee to the next why would the lord want we who love him we who are sharing the gospel that's what these disciples or apostles were doing why would he want us to flee because he has people elsewhere who are ready to receive the gospel, and those people in that particular situation are not interested in us and the gospel. You remember what Jesus says if you go into a village and you preach and they don't receive it, what does he say? Dust, get the dust off your feet and go to another village. That's what he said. So there's nothing necessarily, and I use the word necessarily advisedly, there's nothing necessarily. Wrong with fleeing. Take the Apostle Paul, for instance, his first station of ministry. He started preaching the gospel just as soon as he got his sight back and was baptized. And what happened in Damascus, there was a big pushback from the Jewish community, the community that he had been on route to help to weed out all the believers in Christ and what happened was that his life was in danger. The king of the city didn't want him, he was causing too much trouble and what happened was he was let down of the walls of Damascus in a basket under the cover of night. That sounds like a coward, does it? Chicken leaving. But what happened after that, not much with Paul for about a decade, He goes off the map. Don't know where he is, but he's spending time alone with the Lord in what we call the Sinai Peninsula, what was called Arabia there. And he was there and he was being taught. And then all of a sudden he bursts on the scene in a big way as Barnabas goes from Antioch and gets Paul who's up in, I think it was Tarsus, and brings him down and says, I need your help, brother. They come together and God uses them then they themselves ran into trouble. In Thessalonica, for instance, when Paul was there, there was a big ruckus that was raised against him because he was bad for business in Thessalonica. And the result was that the brothers there pulled him aside and said, you need to leave here and go somewhere else. And he did exactly that. He went there. We know this is not uncommon as long as the motive is not to save your neck necessarily but to advance the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the key. And sometimes it's hard to know that but the Lord will guide us given that situation if we find ourselves in it. So we are to flee attacks. Okay, in verse 16, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Get out of there. I think I have yet to tell you where they went. There's an actual place, Pella is the name, not to be confused with Petra. Both are in modern day Jordan, the sites of those places. But Pella was a place in the northwest of what we now call Jordan. And so these believers, when they got that message from Jesus, remember, before 70 A.D., they received it. And had they not known this text, probably, this teaching of Jesus, they would have maybe ignored it. But they went and they formed a beautiful church that had influence in that city. But also, people went out from that center of Christian life and preached the gospel and shared Christ with people. They fled to the mountains. Let him, verse 17 says, who is on the housetop not go down to get the things out that are in his house and let him who is in the field not turn back to get his cloak. So here is not only a statement about fleeing attacks that could impede the advancement of the gospel but it's also a picture of fleeing attachments what would there be inside the house if you were on the rooftop and it was a common place for relaxation, especially in the warmer months where people would go to escape the heat of that Middle Eastern sun? What would be the purpose in going down? To get things out that are in the house. Things can be impeding, can't they? They compete for our affection. He said, hey, don't worry about them remember what I told you. Seek first my kingdom and my righteousness and all these other things will be added to you. You're going to get what you need to eat and be clothed with something over your head to keep you from the elements. And also, what about the people in the field? Maybe the people on the housetops are thinking, man, I need to get some of that jerky down there and some of those things that won't perish. I'm just going to fill my bag a little bit. But Jesus says, don't do it. Go. It's too urgent a situation. And the people who were in the field, they went back to get some clothing. They might need it. It may be warm now, but it's coming a time when I could use that cashmere coat in winter. And then you look at verse 19, but woe to those who are with child and to those who nourish babes in those days? Or nearly when Jesus pronounces a woe on people, it's not a good thing. This has nothing to do with anything negative. It shows the heart of Jesus for vulnerable people. Pregnant women and the babies whom they care are among all people probably most vulnerable. And babies who are being nursed, they're vulnerable as is the nursing mom. Whoa, in other words, pity on you. May God take care of you. And then verse 20 says, but pray. Here's the other thing. Flee but simultaneously pray. And in each case, the word flee would be translated, keep on fleeing. Don't stop Go until you reach the destination I have designated for you. And then also here, pray. We know the Bible says earlier in Matthew, in chapter 7, keep on asking, and it will be given to you. Keep on seeking, and you will find. Keep on knocking, and the door will be open to you. So, Pray that your flight might not be in winter. Why winter? Winter is the rainy season in what we know as Israel. After a long period of dryness, torrential rains come in the heights. And as the water has a, a mainstream and then lots of tributaries, the power of that water, it becomes a wall and it can be very dangerous. So pray that it won't happen in winter. And by the way, before I forget it, Eusebius tells us that these people who went to Pella to form a church there and to use that as a base camp of operation going forward, they left not in the winter because this abomination of desolation came in a warmer time. The Lord answered that prayer. Pray for safety. Or on a Sabbath. Why the Sabbath? These people were people who had forsaken the law, and now what were they doing? They were meeting in a different day. They didn't even meet on the Sabbath day. Well, I don't know exactly what was happening, but I have a suspicion, and I think you can see the legitimacy. This is an educated guess in a way, but maybe it's the truth. The people who were followers of Jesus in Judea, in Jerusalem, by and large, had been Jews. They still were Jews. They were descendants of Abraham, sons and daughters of Abraham. And so, even though they were no longer bound by the laws of the Sabbath, and the Sabbath, by the way, had become very much a burden. You could walk one half mile, basically 800 meters on the Sabbath, according to the second and third layers. There were a lot of layers put on top of observance of the Sabbath. And you couldn't walk any further. And people would see people, if they were in a hurry to get out of town, they're not going to stop. And we know what happened to a man who was gathering wood on the Sabbath in the day of Moses during the wilderness wanderings. What happened to him? He was brought to trial. God rendered a judgment through the people and he was stoned. These people would have been detained at least and maybe at worst they may have suffered a similar fate. So pray that it doesn't happen in winter. Pray that it doesn't happen on a Sabbath because you might be found out. We want you to survive. We want you to get with the group that's going to Pella and there you will have time to grow in your faith and see the hand of the Lord that way. Look at verse 21. For then there will be a great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever shall. Do you know how great the tribulation was? Josephus in his book, The War of the Jews, he was a contemporary. He observed all that happened. Under Titus. He was with Titus Flavius, the general who commanded the attack and destruction of the city and the temple. He said, and these are estimates, he said 1.1 million people died in that entire campaign when Titus landed on the shore of the Mediterranean Sea and worked his way across. 1.1 million people died. 92,000 people were enslaved. Those who survived, virtually all of them were enslaved. It was an awful thing. Mothers cannibalized their own children. I'm sorry to even mention it, but you have to understand the awfulness, this great tribulation. There had never been one like that before. The one in 70 A.D. and there never shall be. Now remember, we're to apply this prophecy and see it played out in Antiochus Epiphanes in the 2nd century B.C., and then here by Titus Flavius in the 1st century A.D., and there's coming a time the tribulation is going to be incredibly difficult. Look at verse 22. And unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days shall be cut short. The elect are those who know Jesus. And they could even be, because of the awfulness of the atrocities that were occurring, they could be persuaded just to defect and not trust the Lord anymore. But for their sakes, the terribleness, the abomination was cut short. Verse 23 says, Then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him, for false Christ and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. We saw last week how deception is very much a part of this age in which we live. I'm talking about false teachers and how false teachers are very persuasive usually. They're very attractive also. They're like magnets. People are drawn to them. Now the good news is real prophets have those characteristics too. I think immediately about John the Baptist. He was a man out in the middle of nowhere. He's out in the desert. And people are ganging him. They want to hear. Was he a man that was about himself? Absolutely not. In fact, this comes out of the mouth of John the Baptist. He says, I must increase, decrease rather, Jesus must increase. That's not a word about some guy that's trying to build his own empire. He's interested in building the kingdom of God. So we know that there are many great prophets who could gather a crowd. So don't mishear what I'm saying. But we have to be discerning Signs and wonders are actually lauded, praised many times in the book of Acts. But here we see the words of Jesus, and he says, in this time there will be those sorts of people who are false Christs, false prophets, who do great signs and wonders. And the Bible tells us in the book of 1 Thessalonians 5, do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine them carefully. And what is the measurement by which we examine? We look at the word of God and see if there's truth here. And more importantly, we look at the character of the person who is teaching this. And we see, is this person a person who reflects the image of Christ in his or her life? Verse 25, Behold, I have told you in advance. We read from Mark chapter 13. It has this exact statement with this addition, Listen to the way Mark says it. Behold, I've told you everything in advance. Would that suggest that he's told us everything in this particular passage of Scripture so far and in what follows that equips us to know when that time comes? Well, I would say an unqualified yes He has done that for us. We can depend on what Jesus says in this text and put it together with the other teachings of Christ and we have a clear picture of what lies ahead. Verse 26, If therefore they say to you, Behold, he is in the wilderness, do not go forth, or behold, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe them. Here again, another warning. Don't pay attention to false teachers. No matter how impressive They are, don't pay attention to false teachers. Now I want to spend just a few moments as we wind our time up together. Tribulation. The Bible speaks a lot about trials and tribulation. Jesus himself said shortly before he died on the cross in private to his apostles, he says, in this world you will have tribulation. Thank you, Jesus. But he knew it, and it's because of our identification with him. He said, but don't worry. I'm with you. That's the key. When the apostle Paul was on death row in Rome, headed to the place of his beheading at the judgment of Nero emperor Caesar, he said, it's a poignant moment, I can feel it. His humanity comes out. He said, everyone has deserted me. Everyone. All these people I've poured my life into and given my life to, they have deserted me. Unbelievable. He was alone. But then he caught himself. He says, but Jesus was with me. And he is with me. And undoubtedly he must have thought what he had written to the church at Philippi to live is Christ, and to die is gain. He said, I can hardly wait to die. This guy was wild, wasn't he? I can hardly wait to die. Well, he knew he was going to be with the Lord. He's going to serve the Lord. Let me just mention a few verses that have to do with this matter of tribulation. Really two. It's all the time we have for One very familiar in the book of Romans, chapter 5. Paul writes this. We exalt in our tribulation. See some sort of sadomasochist? We exalt in our tribulation? Not at all. For we know that tribulation produces perseverance. And perseverance produces proven character. And proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint. Because the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit of God. And then in James, I just thought about this as we were singing today in worship. This verse came to my mind. I, I had not memorized it before, but it's relevant. And this is what James writes in James 1.10. How blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. For once He has passed the test. Tribulations in your life, trouble in your life in my life are designed to test us. And we test out well, then we take a deep sigh and say, Lord, I've learned my lesson. I can't tell you how many times when I've gone through a period of great testing, I've said, Lord, I've got it. You don't have to test me another time and I'll be Really good with it. Well, I haven't passed the test yet evidently because the tests keep coming. I think they're going to be a part of my life, all of my life. Not because I am reluctant to change. That is the case too often in me. I must say that. I'm slow to obey sometimes. But because we're in a world, we're in a war. And we have an enemy who hates us. But what we do also have is one who is greater in us than he who is in the world and is the chief archangel of hate. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial for once he has passed the test, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. It's easy just to sort of shut down sometimes when I'm working on memorizing a verse or getting to the end of a verse. It would be a, a shame for me to do it or you to do it when he talks about the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. What does this verse suggest will tell the Lord that I love him? I don't quit. That's what it is. I don't quit on him. I'm willing to submit to his authority as my king. Remember, we are subjects of the king. Also in James, James was the brother of Jesus, the half-brother of Jesus. And he says, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. You notice the order? Submission to our king. And then the promise is what? We can resist the devil. And here again, the word resist, it's the word that's translated most often in the New Testament, stand up. Stand up to the devil and do exactly what Jesus did in the wilderness when he was tempted of the devil. What did he do? He answered every challenge and every temptation, every trial with a word from the word of God that was appropriate for overcoming that temptation. We are to be men and women of the word of God. Not just in the sense that we know a lot of it, but that we put it In our hearts, we practice it. And that in itself enables us to deal with tribulation. Tribulation is coming. And there's no escaping it if you're a Christian. You're going to have some form or the other. I'm not a prophet, so I don't know when it's coming. But what I do know, I believe what Scripture says. I believe what God says in His Word. And we can't pick and choose that which we want. It's all His Word. And we need to listen carefully for His voice. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and how your Holy Spirit has given it to us through people who are human like us, who are willing to be used by you. None of us will ever write scripture, but Lord, we can ingest it and digest it and seek you with all our heart and then listen for your voice when you speak to us and be ready to obey you as we Get ever closer to the end of this age. We ask this in your name. Amen. God bless you.